and ingredient so i have to buy at least six basil pots a year <laughs> okay we're talking flowers on here on the blasters and blades podcast not a flower. plant green thing whatever you eat it yeah we're gonna go with that anyway welcome back to another episode of the blasters and blades podcast so hey all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, we get to introduce you to our reoccurring guest, the one, the only, the legendary NASA enthusiast, Kevin Eikenberry. How are you doing today, sir? I'm great. Didn't I just see you guys last week? Yes, yes <laughs> Maybe. that's true. JR, so, we made a special uh, couple-hour-only appearance at Fantasy. So can easily say I'm still recovering. So yeah, my face is kind of ugly. That's why I have to use the avatar. I broke a few people's brains, but uh, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about you, Mr. Kevin. So uh, can you tell the audience a little bit about you in case they haven't listened to the other two episodes? Sure. So I'm uh, I write military science fiction primarily. I've got uh, about 15 novels now. Uh, I'm a retired army officer. I spent uh, the first two thirds of my career as an armor officer and then transitioned over to space operations. So I did space before space force. So that makes me cool. <laughs> uh, uh, hobbies play, play volleyball with, uh, my daughter, do a lot of coaching there. I play golf as well. So, uh, just try to keep doing my thing. And I, I keep working with space every day. So does putt putt count as golf? Cause if so, I am an expert, like look out Tiger Woods. <clears throat> Totally, totally. Don't don't give me that judgy face, Doc. That's not nice. <laughs> no, you, you just know I'm going to be way more fun than golf. It is. I'm like I'm like a, a putt putt shark. I Watch like out. croquet though. Croquet. That's the yeah. I played that before too. That's not like many people golf. play that anymore. It's kind of more violent. <laughs> yeah, what? we had some some serious family fights over the croquet at oh, the yeah. family reunions. Families can get vicious over sports. I, I no no not in my family. However, that is probably the only one where I hit I hit my cousin in the head with a croquet mallet. <laughs> did he have it coming? Yes, he did. We weren't playing <laughs> croquet though. So you weren't using his head as the as the ball. No. Okay. Okay. So now that we've established that putt putt counts and uh, look up. Uh, LPG, whatever professional golf is. I'm not up with all the sports, as you can tell. Uh, next, we get to talk about how we first found them. So I actually found them, like I mentioned before, through the Horror Horseman universe, and the rest, as they say, is history. And then we brought Doc onto the podcast, who's like a super fan, and she's like, no, you will interview him more. So here we are. You sound like a dictator. You are. It's okay, though. Not. I'm a director. There's a difference. <laughs> what I is that difference? Small difference. Uh, <laughs> the rest of us want to know what the difference is. Manners. Okay. So, how did you first find Kevin? Is it is it another booze story? <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> I see there's sobriety in her life. <laughs> uh, uh, so we were at Liberty Con and. Uh, I had somebody go, hey, this is Kevin Eikenberry. You should really meet him. And I'm like, yes, I'm serving him a drink. So, and the rest is, the rest well, is Yeah, okay. So, so can he hold his own liquor? Or does yes, he, he can. Okay. And he can uh, drink decent beer, which not all Army officers do. What, what is decent beer? 
Uh, he tends to drink. I can't remember your drink. You tend to drink bourbon. Yeah. So, but I've seen you with a beer once or twice, but it wasn't like piss water, yeah. like no, like they, no, no. I, I can't. I can't do those. So yeah. Micro brews are where it's at. Yes, they are. Yep, I agree. So. Micro brews or bourbon. <clears throat> And Doc, since we've asked him these questions before, you get to on the fly pick the the religion questions with some different properties. Okay, mm. are we doing Star Trek? You can do what you uh, want. Uh, You're sorry, the dictator. The I mean, director. Babylon Five. Um. Shit. Babylon. Five. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. Which Star Trek? Deep Space Nine. Babylon Five is not a Star Trek. Yes, it is. They stole That's the idea. Really we can go <clears throat> Um, you like to pick on me, I swear. Um, so Stargate, Babylon 5, or Terranova. There we go. Ooh. Um, see, out of those, I would probably go with Babylon 5. Yeah. Terranova I, was awesome. Dinosaurs, how can you go wrong? I, I really love Terranova. Me too. Those bastards over at Fox killed it. Well, that's what they do to everything that's good. I was say, that, that sounds like a recurring theme. It is. <laughs> and they left us on such a cliffhanger. I'm like, you sons of... Mm. Yeah, I was oh, not they, happy. Yeah, Firefly. And uh, didn't they do Didn't they do the same thing to, like, Space Above and Beyond? I mean, you know... The, oh, yeah, yeah. Going back a little bit, but yeah. They think that... They're, like, the person who thinks they like sci-fi and then never get... Ne and it's like, no, maybe not. It's too hard. <laughs> They're thinking. Uh, so, fantasy... Forgotten Realms, Heralds of Valdemar, or the Driz Cycle. You know, I don't read fantasy. Um, yeah, I, and it's I not, and it's it's not from uh, not from just like a hatred or anything of it. it I just I don't I don't have a lot of time. And uh, honestly, uh, the last fantasy I read were uh, the David Eddings series in the nineties, okay. the the Bulgariad, uh, the Tango Oh, line. good stuff. Um, and. <clears throat> I really, so you really don't enjoyed read it. a lot of it, but you do go for good stuff when you do. Yeah, that was I my. That. I don't drink a lot of scotch except for when it's very expensive. That was uh, my first grown-up fantasy series that I read, and then the Homecoming Saga for sci-fi. So mm -hmm. it's a good one. Yep. Fantasy. Yeah, it's just fantasy has not been my thing for a while, but uh, yeah, I, I I would go back to the the Eddings books in a heartbeat. Grown up as in like not for designed for little kids with 12 year old no. protagonists that suddenly their parents die and they rule the world. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the thing I loved about Edding's books, and it's minor segue, but the way that he writes all the different characters so well, and then their interactions when they have like a large group scene is just tremendous. Uh, I really, really enjoyed those books. Yeah. Do you think they so, influence how you write your interactive scene, the scenes where your characters interact? I, I try to aspire to that, yeah. <laughs> well, so part of his premise for the Bulgarian series was the names were so similar that if he didn't personify them so differently, yeah. you wouldn't know who the heck was talking or what the character was. So he kind of, like, with that premise that he started with, had to, or the whole thing would have flopped. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, the personality totally comes through with every every line of dialogue for every different character. It's It's really pretty cool. That's good. That's good because if they're all the same, it gets boring, and it's really hard on the narrators if somebody's going to narrate the book. Yeah, I, uh, the I narrator. I just bought the narr the audiobooks for those because they they started releasing them, and unlike some of the older series where they literally just like digitized the nineteen nineties crappy recording, this <laughs> one actually is is pretty good quality for the Bulgarian series. Nice. That's good to know. 
So they don't have what, all of them. But. So obviously, sci-fi is your main love and your main squeeze. What is it that you love about sci-fi? Um, I've, I've said it before. I think that sci-fi comes back to, for me, one of Ray Bradbury's quotes that it's the it's the realm of the possible. All right, there's there's so many things that that we can write in science fiction that you know are are hopeful that we're looking forward to to potentially seeing in our world. You know, I think we all wanted uh, flying cars after watching the Jetsons as kids, right? Um, science fiction is still kind of it's it's still pointing in that direction that there are things from a technological aspect, there's things from a, a humanitarian and a sociological aspect that we're aspiring towards. So it really is the the realm of the possible for me, and that that's why I've always I've always gravitated towards it. Good answer. <laughs> I love waiting to see if JR approves the answer. <laughs> One. <laughs> so, well, what was your first memory in the genre? Um, probably a tie. I don't know exactly when, when I discovered this, but of course, Star Wars came out in 77 and I was, I was little at that point. I was six and, uh, then uh, about the same time, my, my dad at that point was a, a biology professor. And in his office, he had a couple of books from Asimov. Uh, he had The Caves of Steel and iRobot. And then he also had some Arthur C. Clarke in there, too. And uh, that was, I remember, you know, looking at the books on the shelf and, you know, what's that? And, you know, read, pull off the, the book and read the back cover. Well, this kind of sounds kind of like science fiction. So uh, didn't really don't remember reading those books at that age. <laughs> I remember reading them later, but uh, that was kind of my introduction to the, the genre it was all about the same time. So what does your dad, the biology professor think about your aliens? Uh, you know, it's it. Dad has, has kind of become a, a really big fan uh, <laughs> to, the, to the point that uh, in my my last four horsemen book, Fields of Fire, I, I kill off a pretty major character at the end. And it was, and I, I've told many people, it was kind of unplanned. It went, it went against my original outline, but as I sat and wrote the scene, I, I realized that that was what needed to happen. And, you know, I was a mess writing the scene. I was a mess the next day. And um, <laughs> when I, when I sent the book out, um, I get a message from my dad. It's like, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> and I was like, dad, what's wrong? He's like, you killed, you know, blank. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I did. So he didn't talk to me for a week. <laughs> so I, th I think I did okay. <laughs> you know, you did okay when you make the editors cry. So did, oh. did it do that? Yeah, I got, I got the editor. Yeah, Maya Cleave is my editor. Yeah, I got, got her. Uh, uh, one of my beta readers wrote back with you, son of a bitch. <laughs> so yeah, well I, I got a couple of people with that one. Except for Seska, she never cries because she's a part robot. She doesn't have feelings. I cried. I cried when I read Moretta, Lady of Fern. Oh, that's a that's a pretty good fantasy novel. I'll have to check it out. Fight me, bitch. <laughs> uh, she's feeling feisty this morning. All right. So uh, how did your love of the speculative fiction genre, more specifically science fiction, translate or transition into you writing novels in it? Um, it's kind of funny that we're, that we're on to talk about runs in the family. Cause that was the, the first time I ever had an idea to write a book. Um, I had been told when I was in, in high school and then again in college that I was a good writer. Uh, I had an English minor in college, but I was doing that because I thought I was going to go to law school, uh, which I'm very glad that I did not do. Um, <clears throat> but 
when I was working at Space Camp, we came up with little vignettes and little things to kind of uh, enhance the the kids' experience going through things. And there was uh, a point in there where I thought you know, I could kind of put all this kind of stuff together as a novel, and I did, and it's terrible. It'll never see the light of day. But uh, it was a 2009-ish. Uh, I just I was at my desk one day, and I had this idea for a character, and it was uh, Marin Shields from Runs in the Family, and that kind of got me started writing. So are you just like a marketing whiz and put Runs in the Family behind you? It's like right behind your head. Right there, yeah. yeah, there it is. Well, it live there in the in its proud space. Yeah, I, I put it up there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was an accident. Honest. Just I thought about doing the green screen and have it, you know, in the the, the the screen behind me, but that that works. That's more subtle. Yeah, that's more totally. subtle. I dig it. It took me a second. Like, wait, is that the cover? So. <laughs> Uh, many authors let their own real life experience influence the stories they tell. So were there spe any specific formidable moments that shaped you as a storyteller? Uh, yeah, definitely. And, I, and it's been fun to, to kind of write a few of them into uh, different novels. So Runs in the Family has two of them. Um, it has a story that I've told at the uh, the No Kidding There I Was panel at Dragon Con a couple, a couple years ago and some other places. <clears throat> and then uh, it actually... Uh, there's a, a point where I break down uh, my first jump out of an airplane uh, years ago. And so both of those appear in Runs in the Family. So, yeah, those those moments uh, certainly come through uh, in the, my writing. Fair enough. Hopefully uh, the, the plane wasn't breaking down as you jumped out of it and it was just no. for, you know, grins and giggles. No, it was it was all uh, all planned. <laughs> three three well, weeks of training and they throw you out the door. That's always a plus. You Speaking know, what? Of, like, my grandfather jumped and he told me that was the best way to do it, but is to have the army cover it. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But by, by the time you get to the when you go through the, the airborne school, by the time you get to the, the last week where it's jump week, you are so ready to do it that you don't even think about it. You know, my, my first jump, I was designated as the doorman. So it means I was the first guy out the door on my pass over the over the landing zone. So I'm actually holding on to the doors of the C-130. And, you know, after we go through all the, the jump commands and whatever else, and then the, the light above my head goes green and the jump master slapped me on the rear end and I jumped. I didn't even think about it. You know, you jump out and you do the count, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, wham, the parachute opens, you look up and you check your canopy and you check everything else and you look down, you're like, I just jumped out of an airplane. <laughs> what the hell am I doing? And then then it was like, oh, this is, this is really pretty awesome. So there yeah, you're, you're, go ahead. I say there are certain moments in life where you certainly question your life decisions. Oh, oh yeah, that, that might have been one of them as you're floating to the ground. Exactly, it was that was one of them for about uh, five seconds, and then it was like, "This is really pretty cool." That's yeah. awesome. That is the one regret that I got hurt before I could go. So I was actually slotted on my after my last tour when when uh, Uncle Sam had other plans for my retirement. Yeah. So it happens. Speak. I, I really did not want to be too gravity defying, but. <laughs> Well, you know, not everybody can be crazy. Uh, no, I'm crazy, just not in that way. <laughs> well, you heard it here first. She acknowledges her insanity. So speaking of military science fiction, we talked about already that you were in the U.S. Army. So we ask all of our authors who are military veterans this question. But how do you feel like your time in the big green weenie affects the stories you tell? Uh, it totally does. Um, <clears throat> from characterizations of, of folks that I've met uh, both nicely and, and not so nicely. 
Um, when I when I write out battle sequences, you know, I, I use the old operational terms and graphics I learned as a lieutenant, and I draw out the terrain and everything. So uh, it, it's all part of it. You know, it's it's how you you visualize things. It's how you you write relatable fiction. Um, and there's there's certain parts of it that that some readers will look at and go, you know, I don't I don't understand why this is so important. I had a, a reader write into me one time that they were very thankful that I went through the entire call for field artillery process, you know, call for fire, um, <clears throat> because it, it, it's, it's got certain nuances that you have to do. And it's it's just one of those things that you know, it, it amplifies the realism of the story. But at the same time, it's it's also how things are really done. And some of that can be pretty interesting. Yeah, you you will run into sometimes that stuff gets outdated. I remember uh, I'm writing a series where modern military unit goes to fantasy places. And uh, the co-author asked me for a list of military equipment. So I quickly wrote it up. I'm like, I know all this. And I sent it through just to check my own self because, you know, I didn't handle some of the the rockets and stuff like that which wasn't my specialty to someone I knew who was an expert he goes uh, bro this is like 1990s active duty or early 2000s national guard units that are yeah, conglomerated yeah. i'm like yeah that's what i served he goes bro that's 14 years ago <laughs> that shit's out of date yeah Damn it. so yeah. It, it's, it's amazing sometimes how quickly stuff can change especially since the war in iraq started oh ab- absolutely you know i had somebody write back you know why are, why do these guys that are working a couple hundred years in the future use the same kind of fire commands in a tank that that, that we do currently and my response was, that's one of those things where if it's not broke, don't fix it. <laughs> so, Okay. So you mentioned that you drew on people that you knew um, and both individually and archetypically for your writing. But does the time you spent in the Army affect the kind of stories you read and how you engage in them? Yeah, it, it does. Uh, you know, there's there's certain things, uh, especially when I'm in the middle of writing a, a novel project. I'm actually, I read a lot of nonfiction when I do that. Um, but in between things when I'm reading uh, particularly somebody else's stuff, yeah, I, I, there's certainly aspects of, uh, different fiction that I, that call to me, um, action thrillers, you know, ac- action adventure thrillers. Uh, those are, those are a lot of fun to read. Uh, it's kind of funny that in some cases I can tell when an author might've not actually had the military service or they've, they've used somebody else kind of as a, as a proxy. Um, it's just, uh, it, it's the it, it's the nuance piece, right? Uh, I remember reading a story uh, someone had submitted through a critique group years ago, where one of the the lower enlisted, you know, looks at the the, the platoon leader and says Sarge, and I'm like, that's never going to happen. <laughs> that will never happen. So Sarge uh, is a, a thing that was more in use and accepted during I think like World War II Korea era, and it faded out, absolutely. and it still happens, but mostly it was if you were already like had a relationship with the person or you just wanted to mess with them and you were willing to take the flack that came with it. Cause wall to wall counseling was real. Yeah. Well, yeah. Wall to wall counseling was a real thing. Yes. So. Very much so. Even, <laughs> even, even in the Pogue units that I was in, it was still a, very much a real thing. And you knew when you, you done screwed up, excuse me. Yeah. We had an NCO and who was in my gaming group and um, another soul. He joined later on and he was the DM it was very funny because one of the guys who he he showed up to a couple of games, but I think he got a little intimidated afterwards because he he went up, hey Ray, and he turns around and he goes, "What specialist?" Yeah, yeah. It was actually very funny. He got a he definitely earned his ice cream that day. Yeah, I watched an army lieutenant try to use a first name on a master sergeant one day. That went real well. 
I, I tended to try to avoid the lieutenants wherever possible. <laughs> a good plan. <laughs> yeah. We we had one case where we had a a cadet came in, like because they they'll do those things where they go to the units. Yeah, like CTLT. And, and that was funny because he ended up his dad was a sergeant major, and so he accidentally slipped and called him dad, but nobody heard it except for like two or three people, and he goes into my office <laughs> and they're like oh the sergeant major took a cadet in and it was just it was more like he, he had gone in a text message and they didn't really run into each other typically in the day yeah and it was just like they bumped into each other and he's like dad ah yeah so, i can yeah, totally I, see that it was funny as hell we all thought it was hilarious and told everybody that, that the that the cadet basically died <laughs> the worst ones were the cadets that came and thought you should salute them and that they were real lieutenants. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah that was our reaction too. I'm like, yeah, you, you go over there and count grass or something. Yeah. Yeah. All right. It's so now it's time for your most favoriteest questions of all. Fandom <laughs> questions. So I know some of these answers are what they pertain to in the unit. Um, in the four horsemen universe, but have you had anybody cosplay or fan art for your own unique series? Like running the family is unique from four horsemen. So it is, I haven't had anybody cosplay or do anything from runs in the family or from the, the protocol war books uh, yet. Okay. Yeah. But uh, I, I have had a cosplayer from uh, the four horsemen universe, which was kind of the, it, it's, it's an incredible moment to recognize that they're, they're cosplaying your character. So they're cosplaying something that you've created uh, being at Fantasy and seeing the the peacemakers from the the Four Horsemen uh, Mercenary Guild Association, our fan group, um, <laughs> I was I got called up to to give given impromptu remarks at their awards ceremony, and I'm standing there and I'm looking at the the three guys on the front row that are all wearing peacemaker stuff, and I just I choked up, I couldn't Aww. I couldn't get it out because you're just you're thinking, wow, this is this is something that you know people are really getting into. And I've seen, you know, I've seen some different T-shirts and everything now, and and that's uh, tremendous. It, it, it's it's humbling in a way because you you see so much of their love and appreciation for what you do, and it manifests in what they wear, and uh, it's it's just pretty doggone cool. I can't I can't can't say anything else besides that. My first uh, story in the Four Horsemen anthology was a peacemaker story, and I remember getting a call from from Chris Kennedy, and he said, "Well, you know, if you write something and someone else writes something, whoever's first in best dress, that's what we're going with. It's automatically canon." And you beat me turning your story in. So I remember getting a call. I'm like, "I hate to do this to you, but you're gonna need to do a major rewrite because he made all these changes." <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> that was you know, that was something that was completely unplanned. Um, you know, I I was in the process. I had just finished the the second of the Protocol War books, and I was looking at other projects. And Chuck Gannon is is a friend of mine, and Chuck introduced me to Chris and Mark through this the the anthology call. And I just I wrote a story and sent it in, and yeah, everything just kind of took off from there. So sorry I beat you to it. <laughs> yeah, it happens. I just thought it was funny that <laughs> that it was you, given yeah. that we're here. Yeah, it, that is funny. I know um, you've done amazing stuff, not just with Four Horsemen, but on your own. And it's really awesome. Chuck's got an eye for talent, that's for sure. So have you had anybody ask you for your autograph away from cons, drop ad forms? So 
not so much ask for an autograph, but it was kind of funny because uh, I have a, a teenager and my daughter was in class last school year and she was introducing herself and they, they, they were asking questions about the family because she had started a new school. So, you know, do you have any brothers and sisters and whatever else? And uh, she said, well, and my dad's a writer. And the teacher was like, oh, well, what's he write? Well, he writes science fiction. About that time, one of the other kids in the class types my name into Google and it comes up with this sidebar with my photo and says author. And there was this, <laughs> there was this explosion of, oh, he's, it's re he's really an author. <laughs> and my, of course, my daughter comes home, you know, both, you know, at a combination of thoroughly embarrassed and really proud as, as teenagers do. So it was, it was kind of funny. So that's awesome. Um, uh, that has got to be a very special moment. Uh, and I've, I'd let's wait and see if she gets into writing too. That'll make it very interesting. Well, <laughs> she's happen. My, my oldest is actually, she's actually a really, really good artist. Um, oh, cool. She's, it, and it's, it's developing more every day. She, she's really into to manga and she's, she's got a, a lot of talent with a, a, a pencil in her hands. It's, it's really kind of fun to watch. I keep getting I, on her to write, but she likes the art piece. So no, I mean, the art piece is really valid too. And it's definitely a different story format. So Absolutely. You know, and I, and I told her, I said, when you're ready to start writing stories, I've got a couple of novels, a couple of books over here on the shelf. I'll get you because <laughs> there's some really good stuff. So, but there are some, there's this, we should have Nick on Nick and do a comic book episode. Have her listen to some of those where they talk about some of the different ways you tell a story oh, yeah. when you're involving pictures. So, they, and they make total fun of me because I'm like, I, I think I've read a manga or 10, 20 yeah. and like one comic. And they're like, yeah. they're different. They're different, asking. I'm like, no, they're not. They yeah, have pictures. They're all the same to me. Now, on my writing shelf, though, I've got a bunch of storybooks, but I also have comics and sequential art by Will Eisner because there's there's so much there when you talk about being able to, you know, in a, in a comic, you see the, the, the scenery, you see the, the scene. Yeah. And being able to translate some of that to words is very important. So as you look at how comic scripts are written and how authors and writers actually put that together and then have the artist kind of manifest it, there's a lot to, to draw on there. So, well, have you had somebody, have you spotted someone reading one of your books out in the wild? I have. Um, it was, I was at a, one of the, one of the bigger shows, I think it was Phoenix comic fest. And you know, I, you, when you have a big booth that you're, that you're a part of and you're selling books, you, you kind of lose track of the people that buy your stuff. And mm -hmm. uh, the, one of the mornings I remember getting up in the hotel and walking down to, to get ready to, to make my way over to the convention center. And someone was sitting in the lobby reading uh, sleeper protocol, which was really pretty cool. That is awesome. So, um, and Sleeper Protocol, is that one of your Four Horsemen ones? No, that's the that's the first of the Protocol War books. Okay. So I have Sleeper Protocol and Vendetta Protocol at this point. So We've actually interviewed um, him about that on the Sci-Fi Shenanigans, and I don't know if I pulled that out of the archives yet, but it's on the list. Yeah. Okay, that's awesome. I'll definitely listen to it. I think that was before I was on Sci-Fi. Maybe, I don't know. Um, yeah, I think it was. interaction you've had? Hmm? As I said, I think it was before you were on uh, SF Shenanigans. Yeah. So. so, but we still pull from that because, you know, we're crazy. Uh, but what was the craziest fan interaction you've had? Hmm. Was it making was it making all the peacekeepers drink the grog? No, <laughs> that, that's part of the job. 
when you when you do the dining out and you're one of the the speaking roles, yeah, it's kind of kind of part of the job. Um, God, I don't know if if I've got a, a really crazy one. The the one that is the pretty much I'd say the most impactful is uh, DragonCon a couple years ago. Um, I was invited to to be one of the authors at uh, Sherilyn Kenyon's big ball that she ball that she puts on. And uh, I had a table set up there next to my, my buddy Quincy Allen and a couple other folks. And we're just talking and everything else. And this, this gentleman walks up with his wife and he starts talking to me. And I realized very quickly he's from Australia and they've made arrangements to be at DragonCon as part of a, a trip here to the States. And one of the people that he wanted to meet was me. And Aww. that was, uh, I, I just remember kind of standing there with my mouth hanging open like, you, you've got to be kidding me. And uh, that was that was pretty amazing. Sorry, Jr. just typed in the chat what episode it was. It was episode sixty-nine out of season one. So that was before she no, came along. Sure, so that made me giggle. I yeah, didn't realize that either. <laughs> I was just funny. curious if it was season one because you know, with her being such a big fan, I wasn't sure if it was we interviewed you because of her or not. Apparently, it was just on your own merit. She didn't have to bribe us to get you to interview you. So well done. I don't Thank bribe. You. You're too cheap to bribe. I just tell you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So on that happy note. (laughs) (laughs) So can you give us the highlights of what you've written in your body of work? Uh, So I have the 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 Protocol War series that has two books in it so far: Sleeper Protocol and Vendetta Protocol. I I will eventually get around to uh, finishing that. Uh, This little thing called the Four Horsemen kind of got in the way. Yeah, Mark, it's ending. Eventually, it will. It will eventually end. Uh, but then there's, with it being a universe, there's so many places where you can kind of go back into the timeline and tell additional stories. That I don't think it will really ever end. But uh, the main storylines will will come to a close. Um, outside of the protocol where I have what what's called the Imprint War series, that's run, where runs in the family fits in, and then uh, it's got a a novel that's kind of a sequel but kind of a prequel both that's called Their Election of Duty that came out last year. Mm-hmm. Um, I will probably write a third book in that series later this year. It kind of depends on how the writing calendar goes, mm-hmm. but I've had people that have asked for it and want to do it, so I want to I want to try. And then of course the Four Horsemen books of which there are now uh, a lot. I have five individual novels, uh, three co-written novels. Uh, so a, a lot of another another co-written novel probably uh, getting underway here very soon. So uh, that's been that's been pretty big. And then uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, Chris published one of my other novels, which is completely outside of everything. It's not even military science fiction. It's a uh, kind of a crime novel in space. Uh, Elmore mm-hmm. Leonard was one of my literary heroes, so he's the guy behind uh, Jackie Brown, the the movie. Um, uh, I just lost out of sight as another one, be cool, get shorty, all of those kind of books. And, uh, it's, this book is called super sync and it's about a couple of salvage crews in orbit, trying to go after a, a satellite that's worth an awful lot of money, but they have a lot of problems between the, the four of them. So they have to see who exactly you want to pull for and it keeps you guessing kind of to the end, which is kind of fun. All right. Well, that all sounds fascinating, but you sort of spilled the beans earlier and told them we're here to talk about runs in the family. So where did you get the premise for this series or for this novel since it's a standalone? Was it psychedelics, Ouija board, tainted beef jerky? Uh, I like to call it the idle Tuesday afternoon. Um, I was back on, I, I was back on active duty. I was teaching ROTC and uh, one afternoon I was at my desk and I, I, I had a character start talking to me. Uh, it was just very clear that 
Now I had this idea at that moment, something just crystallized that here's this character. And I started writing some notes about it. And I recognized after about my second page of notes that this was a book and how the hell do I write a book? <laughs> so being on a, on a college campus, I talked to my commander at the time and said, Hey, I want to go back and take a college class. He's like, go for it. So I took creative writing and I had creative writing in college because I was an English minor. And I turned in my first assignment and the professor asked me why I wasn't published. And at that point I had uh, no answer for them. And, uh, I just decided to start writing. And so part of my job in that uh, class was as an auditor was I just wrote stories. So I wrote three or four different stories and had to submit them to markets and of course was rejected because that's what writers do when they first start. But then in the process of that, I started writing the the book runs in the family and uh, it was, it was an adventure. It was the first book I ever tried to write. It took me 18 months to write it. Um, and it was a god awful mess <laughs> when it finally was picked up by a, a publisher. I sat down with the editor, and the editor kind of leans across the table at me and says, "We're going to make some cuts." And uh, I lost uh, the like the first three chapters, and I lost a couple others during the the course of the book. Um, and from a lessons learned perspective, I started in the wrong place. I went down rabbit holes that didn't need to be done. And that was kind of uh, a great learning experience for me because as I went through the, you know, the modeling and the, the outlining for the next book that I tried to write, which was Sleeper Protocol, my debut novel, uh, I just, I wanted to do things differently. And uh, I did a lot of research on outlining. I had a couple of mentors that I reached out to and kind of walked me through the process. And what I learned there changed the way that I write because now I can average a book about every 12 weeks uh, amongst, uh, you know, family and everything else. So it takes me about three months to write a book now versus 18 months, which is a substantial improvement. So that's kind of, kind of the story of where it came from. Okay. Well, speaking of the story of where it came from, now we're going to have the story of where this art came from. So can you tell me the story about this cover art and how it came to be? So uh, the original publisher for Runs in the Family was uh, an, an outfit here in Colorado Springs that was named Strigidi Publishing. And uh, when it came out, uh, this was one of the books that they had that really kind of took off. Um, it, it sold incredibly well. When we were going through the process of the cover art, um, I believe that the publisher reached out on one of the, the art uh, freelance websites. And uh, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head right now. It's not Fiverr, but it's something else. But they reached out and, and got probably 12 or 15 different interpretations based on the, the, the premise of the book and, you know, kind of a little write-up of, of a synopsis that, that you post. And this was the one that uh, we selected. I just, I wish okay. I could remember the site name because it was, it was pretty cool. You know, the, the focus was, you know, you obviously had a, a tank and uh, you had a female protagonist. And so there was, there were a lot of pieces that kind of came through and this one, this one just kind of resonated. Is it Upwork? Because that's one of the ones people use or used to. No, it's, it's, it's not Upwork. It was, it was, a. I, you know, what's going to happen. JRI will remember like five minutes after we finish recording. <laughs> so 99 designs or DeviantArt are the other two. Uh, that's it. 99 designs. That was it. I, it had, it had the numbers in the title. That's it. Okay. Yes. All right. I like that. Yeah. I, li I kind of like how the, um, the swirl around the globe, uh, the planet. Wait, there's a swirl like around the planet. There's a, mm -hmm. you're colorblind. Cool. It's subtle, it but it, there's kind of a uh, almost a ribbon, and it looks kind of like DNA. 
That's exactly what it's supposed to be. Yeah, it's got the, got a kind of a DNA piece to it because the the premise of uh, runs in the family is that you have a young woman who is kind of a wallflower, right? She's finished college. She's very very shy. Very, I you know, at, at risk of saying nerdy. That's kind of the way it works. But um, and she volunteers for an experiment there. She's going to receive the memories of uh, an ancestor who basically died in Afghanistan in 2016. And she has to process those memories and blossom into the warrior her ancestor was supposed to have been. That sounds really cool. So I, I, Nick will be so proud, though, that I got some comments in. So I do like the tank in this in the forefront. Is, is she a tanker? Yes, she is a tanker. That's what that's what she becomes. So, uh, yeah, it was kind of it was fun to to write that kind of story that you know, have this this young woman who processes all this information and is immediately thrown into a situation of of hurry up and wait. Uh, and while she's in while she's in hurry up and wait, uh, she meets and falls in love with an alien, and then is forced to leave and go to war. And uh, that transition for her is very jarring and uh, shocking. And the, the process of her developing into a combat leader is not without challenge. She has uh, an immediate commander who is essentially a drunkard and a coward and who likes to blame his subordinates for things when they go wrong. So she becomes a, a target of his ire. Uh, but at the same time, at, at the same time, she's she's learning how to succeed in uh really unimaginable situations. And it, it was a lot of fun. I had a friend of mine who was also a tanker uh, send me a comment. He's like, dude, this is pretty much Starship Troopers for girls. It's <laughs> like, yeah, I'll take that comment. <laughs> I really will. <laughs> because Starship Troopers is, you know, at its core that this is the book, not the movie. We're not talking about the movie. <laughs> Just forget that the movie exists. The movie um, is amazing. I enjoyed but, the both. I, I lost book. both of you there for a second. I lost. Yeah. I enjoyed both. Well, I did too. I I have less than six degrees of separation to the movie to the the star. So we'll we'll talk about that later. But, um, <laughs> so the 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 book though at its core, and it was one that I read in uh, college when I was in ROTC. It's it's really about leadership and becoming a small unit leader. And there's a bunch of other stuff that is obviously part of the novel. But uh, when you follow uh, Johnny Rico's development. That's kind of uh, reminiscent here, at least, of what what I was trying to get at with runs in the family. So you've got this this excuse me this young woman who is learning from her mistakes and from her successes and translating that into becoming a more successful combat leader, which was a lot of fun to write. Okay. All right. Well, we'll forgive you for your poor taste. I, it's not that I didn't enjoy the book, but it felt more like a philosophical treatise than a than an adventure novel oh and absolutely that's there but if once you get past the the the, the philosophical treatise part of it and really look at the just from a, the leadership perspective i think you would see that there's there's a, a lot of story there and how uh, rico develops which is again it's for for me that was the thing that resonated the most you know the the, the, the treatise part of it and some of the the, the philosophy that Heinlein was doing there, uh, I I kind of I will admit to you that when I was in college, I kind of glazed past it. I was looking at the the combat sequences and looking at, at that progression because in ROTC, that's what you're you're focused on. You're focused on how do I become this, you know, this lieutenant? How do I become this leader, especially from a, a background that might not have actually had any of that? So that's that's why uh, the book actually resonated with me more. So. If we had to 
like forced you to, we told you you can either go play golf but you can go play golf right now but you have to give us a 30 second elevator pitch all right so the elevator pitch for this novel is uh, in the future a, a young woman volunteers for an experiment to receive the an, an ancestor's memories and like i said before she must blossom into the warrior that he was destined to have been See, there we go. That's a good 30 second. Jared was like, no, ask the 30 second. Mostly because sometimes authors come back with really funny answers. <laughs> no, like yours was very on point. And sometimes they're like, uh, like Mar Mark, when we asked him for four horsemen, he basically started put, putting, sounding like a recruitment poster and <laughs> <laughs> taglines. It was yeah. pretty funny. Um, so We've talked some about what makes your story special and unique, but what tropes do you really feel runs in the family hits on? Um, I think it, it hits on, uh, on several. I think the, the untested leader, um, the opportunity to follow a woman who has to, to, to develop, it falls along. Uh, there's a lot of intrigue in the story as, as her, uh, the, the alien that she falls in love with goes back to earth. Uh, there's a whole other storyline that takes place there. Um, there's the storyline of the the weak commander, the weak you know the weak commanding officer that she has to overcome. Um, there's there's a lot. Uh, there's the, one of the tropes is that the the aliens in this particular case are called the Greys. They're the little gray men, and uh, you don't actually see them, but you see their their vehicles and and how they fight is very different. Um, they actually because of uh, reasons that are not fully explained at this point in that universe their tanks and their, their armor personnel carriers look like human tanks from the 1950s and sixties. So they, they have adopted what they saw on, you know, maybe an earth observation mission and that's what they're deploying. But because they are more technologically advanced, they, you know, they're, they're mass produced. They're very capable. They're much more capable than the original weapon systems were. So that, that makes it a lot of fun to, to write those. And, you know, you've got something that looks like a, a Russian T-55 tank, but it's firing a particle beam. That's a little different. So it was kind of fun to, to kind of meld those technologies together too. Awesome. Good answer. So what subgenres or genres do you think this story best fits into? Well, it, it's, it's clearly military sci-fi, but there's the, there's that little bit of romance piece to it. I, I won't, I won't lie. That's, that's there. Uh, a lot of political intrigue. Uh, there's a lot of the, the thriller kind of aspect of some of the things that are happening away from the actual combat scenes. Um, and again, there's a lot of it's it's a lot of development. So there's a lot of leadership skills that are, are highlighted in this uh, as Marin develops, and that was kind of what I wanted to do. So okay. And so, what is it that really pulls you into military sci-fi specifically? Um, for me, I think it's. And of course, and you guys are all vets and you understand this. Uh, I'll try to articulate this for folks that were not in the military. A lot of people think that the, the military, especially when you're, you're working with, with folks is about the mission. And it's really not, it's about the, the people around you. And while it's fun to tell the, the stories of combat and, you know, weapon systems, whether it's the, the Casper from the four horsemen universe or some of the stuff that Chris Kennedy are working and I are working on. That's like our take on Pacific Rim. You know, you can certainly write about those types of technologies and have a lot of fun with it, but it really comes back down to those interactions with people 
and being able to place your characters in those realistic situations where you, you know, you're seeing Marin have to deal with uh, Colonel Coffee, who's her immediate commander, who, again, he's a drunkard and a coward. And she sees this, but she can't overcome it because of her rank and her position in, in the initial part. And then you see how she re responds to like her tank crew and the, the original unit that she's put into, which is basically a bunch of misfits. And they're, they're sent off on this combat mission together and she has to put them into a, a cohesive unit very quickly and how that, that dynamic develops over time. So those types of, of interactions for me is what, that's what draws me to military sci-fi is yeah, I can write the technology. I can write the, the combat sequences and the tactics and whatever else, but when I look at over the course of my life, I've got a couple of, of areas where I met a lot of different uh, characters and the military was certainly one and how everybody interacts with one another is uh, a critical part of storytelling for me. Okay. Well, speaking of storytelling, let's move on to the deeper end of the story. So what can you tell us that you didn't already about the main character? Well, as, as Marin develops, there's, you know, she, she, again, she's placed in some situations that are, uh, again, very difficult, but she's also dealing with these memories that keep coming back. So as, you know, she's going through this process, it's not like just all of a sudden, wham, she gets the, the memories of the ancestor. She kind of has to, st has to start manifesting them. And as they come in there, they come in at some opportune times and some inopportune times where she's, you know, understands immediately what the the context of the memory that came up was or she's kind of left like what was that about and then has to deal with the, the ramifications of that and realizes well okay that was i now i understand you know now I, there's there's a piece of that memory that applies to the situation either that i just went through or that i'm about to go through and uh, that that's a lot of fun the uh the, the combat sequences are, are a lot of fun to write in this book, you know, with uh, looking at tanks that, uh, that actually hover, that have uh, more capable main guns, they have uh, better weapon systems, they actually have kind of a, an AI interface on board that's part of the crew. So all of that is, is a lot of fun for, for me as a writer to be able to, to tie in and you know, be able to place the, the reader into hopefully an, an immersive world that uh, both makes sense and still makes them ask questions over the course of the novel that they can eventually have answered, which is what you want to do. So do you feel like the AI has enough personality that it qualifies as a secondary character? Not really. Not in this particular book, no. It's it's basically more like a command and control uh, function for the tank, uh, kind of like a, a caution and warning board, if you will. So rather than having just another display for uh, a tank commander to have to look at, it's just another piece. So, excuse me, having the AI that's it, and it's it's really not even an AI. It's kind of hard, kind of hard to to really describe what the interface is, but it's just basically this platform that assists the commander being able to identify targets or being able to switch communication frequencies on the fly, that type of thing. So, it's not necessarily a character. It's more like a system, if that makes sense. It does. Speaking of characters and secondary characters, because those are a lot of fun. Uh, were there any secondary characters in here that were especially memorable? Maybe a, a perky young sergeant who's like teaching her the way. I don't know. Sergeants run everything, so. So there are. No, uh, yes, no. They... <laughs> the mafia just thinks they're in charge. I'm, I'm going to get between the E4 mafia and the NCOs here, so I'm going to choose my words carefully. Um, That's a safe place. 
<laughs> there, there are several uh, characters that come into play here. Um, it was kind of fun with because um, Marin comes in as a, as a captain, so she she inherits a couple of lieutenants, and the lieutenants are uh, essentially conglomerations of some of the cadets I taught in ROTC, which was fun to piece them together. The commanding officer is a conglomeration of a couple of folks that I worked for over the course of my military career that made my life a living hell. Um, <laughs> so it was, again, kind of fun to put them together. Um, Marin's love interest, the Talonara, uh, was uh, incredible uh, to write and to try to be able to get into this piece uh, of, the, of the story. So, and then the, the officers that are in charge of the, the process to imprint her, um, which that's another piece there. And then the, the overall, like the division commander uh, was uh, that's uh, again, a conglomeration of some folks that I worked with, but he was a lot of fun to write because uh, there were a couple of folks I worked for that I can easily say were uh, unique individuals. And so having, having a chance to kind of piece that together was, was fun too. Okay. So why did you make the decision to have her come in as a captain? So that was a combination of some of the, the manifestations that are going on behind the scenes with this, this process. And it's felt to, to her that uh, as she's, as she comes into this with those memories that her ancestor was a captain. And so she, being able to help process the context, they make her the same rank, which really uh, kind of, rankles the the Terran Defense Force, the overall military command structure above her. But at the same time, it makes the most sense for her to be able to process all of what's happening. So that's why she comes in as a captain. And she very quickly has to realize that, you know, this is <laughs> serious business and she has to follow what those memories and what those gut feelings are telling her to do. So do you end up covering how... I can with imagine because I mean Ahead, you can only imagine because there are enough people who don't get really fussy about college specialists. So I can only imagine how well that went over for her. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't go over well. But again, she's it's one of the things that she begins to overcome is, you know, be going from a situation where she was not even looking at the military as an option to now she's suddenly there. She's a captain. She's having to process all this and lead troops at the same time. Uh, it's for me, it was a lot of fun to write. I'm sure for her as a character, it was hell. <laughs> it works. So do you cover the disparity between the experiences of her ancestor who fought in 2016 versus clearly this is modern or not, not modern. This is uh, future tech. So like mm -hmm. not all of the experience is going to line up exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's, there's, there's a matter of that. It's not going to line up exactly, but it comes back to it, it, for most of the, the, that development piece, it's the context of it. It's the understanding, you know, situations change. And she has to be able to think on the fly. She has to be able to, to look at and develop courses of action and be able to implement those or decide not to implement those based on risk. Um, she applies the, the principles of leadership that are, that are time honored and true, uh, even going all the way back to like troop leading procedures, you know, being able to understand there's certain things that you have to do in the conduct of a mission to ensure your success or to, to ensure that you have the capability of grabbing success. And those are the things that she does. But then the, the, the contextual piece is, yeah, you know, she goes from looking at an ancestor who died in 2016, fighting a counterinsurgency uh, war to basically being, you know, peer-on-peer -peer armored conflict, which is a very different thing than her ancestor was trained to fight. So, yeah, there's a, a lot of that. Okay. So, 
All right, that's uh, that's a good answer. So speaking of good answers, we, we expect a, an excellent one from this question too. So who is the bad guy in this story that they face? Obviously, we don't want spoilers because we want people to read the book, but who are the the uh, the bad guys? So the the direct bad guy, of course, is the Greys, right? The the alien race that is they're very shadowy and not a lot is known about them. So there's a lot of the, those sequences where they are fighting the Greys. But Marin's real personal antagonist is her uh, immediate commander, the colonel. And uh, he it gets promoted uh, for valor. And, uh, you know, the valor is, was really Marin's and some of the other folks that he was willing to sacrifice. But he gets promoted for it. And so it's, it's her overcoming him. And then um, near the end of the book in that climactic sequence, uh, it, she faces him down. And... Uh, it, I, I like the scene. I like I like where where it went. It's very very different from what a, a, an officer might actually do. But this is kind of writing fiction. So um, in the case of that, she makes a, a battlefield decision and executes it. Okay. Uh, just as long as she didn't execute him, they kind of get upset when you execute officers. <laughs> no spoilers. Oh oh. <laughs> I see what you did there. All right. So speaking of characters, uh, if yours ever met you in a back alley, uh, especially if, after all the, the things you did to to both the dead uh, 2016 ancestor and his offspring down the line, um, how do you see that playing out for you? Are they going to cut your head off and put it on a pike? Um, I, I don't think they would go that far, but it, it might not be an initial pleasant conversation. <laughs> I would I would do my best to steer them for a drink and and be able to talk nicely about things. But eh, would there be knife hands involved? What say again? Knife hand. Oh yeah, yeah. I I definitely get the knife hand. I can't believe you did this to me. Yeah, yeah. totally. So, in the universe, um, you know, sometimes the universe itself is as much a protagonist as the characters. Can you give us a hint as to what kind of expansive world? of tech we can expect in this expansive world. I really did drink coffee this morning, I swear. Um, I think from a from like a technological piece, it's kind of the, the best thing that we could hope for, right? So, you know, in this particular universe, the ships have artificial gravity. You know, they're capable of faster than light travel. Um, there's the, the integration of technology at the personal level. There's the, the piece of being able to... Uh, do or have almost anything I, you know there's not really a lot of discussion about like the the you know the economics of the the universe or anything along those lines but there's the the piece where you know humanity has a, a expanded into the galaxy you know we, we've been able to, to get out and we've colonized worlds and we're part of a of an overall i think and with runs in the family we call it the legion of planets right it goes <laughs> kind of back to the comic books but uh, still it all works together and so you you have all this where you you build this expansive universe. And then in my case, I, I kind of built this with some of the, the best case scenarios of, of the technology. I mean, like the near real-time communications via Ansible, you know, which is an, a really old science uh, fiction trope, but it's, it's there because it, it helps move in this particular case, the, the story and the plot along. All right. So do we um, get chemically propelled projectiles or pew pew lasers? Uh, a little bit of both. Yeah, a little bit of both. And with the humans, with their tanks, it's more chemically propelled. Uh, but, but we also have some electro electromagnetic railgun technology that's used. 
Um, but then, yeah, the, the aliens have uh, particle beams, which makes them, uh, from a standoff perspective, they're technically more of a uh, more advanced than us. But that's where the tactics and whatnot are applied a little bit differently. Okay, Doc, it's your, one of your other favorite questions. So what, uh, what tech would you use in daily use and how would you abuse it? <laughs> uh, I think the ability to have the, the a connection via uh, what I call a comm set on their wrist is basically it's kind of like the, the best of the, of the internet, the technology, everything is all there. But then also being able to have music played directly to my ears. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I would totally use because I'd be in my own little world all the time and nobody would be able to get my attention. So I would totally abuse that. Sounds good. Uh, Apple would want you to have it too. And then they would just pump ads straight into your earbuds. No, uh, so Apple would want it. <laughs> they, they might too. Bezos, uh, all hail. Um, so I listen to audiobooks. So, so in many worlds, because we, we circle back a little bit to the characters, the universe that the stories are told in are almost as much a character as the people. So other than what you've already told us about, like the League of Planets and the, the ongoing war with the Greys, is there anything else about the, uh, the universe that makes it stand out in, in the field of sci-fi? I think it's, it's a universe that, that has a lot of potential because we're, you're talking about a, a far future where humanity is, is basically learned to be very pacifistic. And as the greys raise their ugly head, there are folks that are looking at ways that they can actually go back and be able to try to bring forward um, the, the, the tactics and the thought processes of folks from our time, because we were, we were capable of, of waging war at a different level. So as, as things progress with this and you kind of get towards the, I won't say the utopian type of, of uh, society, but a very peaceful, very uh, coexistent earth, you know, earthlings at that point, they don't feel like there needs to be any, any real conflict. So they they make a lot of progress to get off the planet and do the colonization piece. And as they do, then they realize that there are many senior races out there and there's a potential problem coming. And if they come back and attack earth, there's no way that earth's going to be able to stand. Okay. So did you cover without giving any spoilers, how you determined whose memory got saved to be implanted later? Was it so, happenstance? So sure, without without spoiling anything, uh, there's a a couple of things that come to, to come together. There is a uh, a completely fictional piece of technology that's de that's deployed to Afghanistan to study uh, brains. So we're looking at like the development of uh, as we were looking at uh, mild traumatic brain injuries or MTBIs. So there's this piece of technology that's developed to scan brains and kind of see like a before and after sort of thing, right? So they're, they're scanning these folks as they go into combat situations, but then uh, they don't get the opportunity to scan them later on. They recognize, though, with about 200 or so of the scans that there's a significant amount of data that's actually captured. And what they've done is that they've actually isolated memory that's transitioning from short term to long term in the hippocampus. And so they're actually able to you know, identify that and hold it. And then by using a DNA uh, descendant, right? Someone that has a, has a, a replicative DNA of the original subject, they're able to graft the memory through DNA process, which, you know, there's some, some theories that there's a, a certain aspect of instinct and memory that may actually be transmitted via DNA. I just kind of extrapolate that a little bit and then give it a little bit of alien technology to make it work. Okay. So Runs in the Family is currently a standalone in a larger universe, but is the story of your main character done? 
No. Um, no, we're not done. There, there's more to it. You know, I actually had started writing a sequel several years ago, but then the Four Horsemen came along, and uh, I've had so much commitment there that uh, I've decided to originally sit on the the, the future of the storyline. But then, as I was going through, I ended up going back and writing Dereliction of Duty, which kind of focuses on why they chose Marin, and and it also has a, its own story as well. So there's there's kind of an interconnectedness to it there, but it's not a not a direct book as far as a prequel sequel, if that makes any sense. It so does. And what do they have to bribe you to do with to get it? I have bourbon. <laughs> I have Angel's Envy. I got Writer's Tears, which is really a whiskey. But I, I got yeah. bourbon. Like what no, do we need to bribe you with? I, all I can tell you is my my whiteboard's right behind the camera, and it, it's it's there. So it's just a matter now of I've got a, a major four horseman novel to, to finish. That's kind of the, the, the preeminent thing right now. And then a couple of other projects that are in between that are partially written. And uh, then from there that I'm hopeful to get to that by the end of the year. Cool. So did the imprinting that they transferred over have to be familial or uh, it, did you cover that at all? Yeah. It, it's, it's best done if it's familial. So that's, that's why that, that they've chosen her. Okay. That works. So, um, sorry. It's, it's your alien question, doc. I know you, you get all question. choked up. So how, I know I'm so excited. What, how do you go about designing the aliens you've done? Are they whole cloth or are they, you know, tropolicious? What? There's, there's some tropolicious to it, but there's, there's also, you know, we think, and I think sometimes in the creation of, of alien races, we have things where we, you know, certain trope areas we go to, like there has to be an insectoid race, right? So in the, the four horsemen, we have the Minshaw that look like giant praying mantises. In this particular universe, you have the Vema who are very similar. And, you know, they were developed in, you know, two very discordant ways, but it's the same kind of thing. Um, so designing an alien is is challenging. Uh, in this particular case, with the the alien race that that Marin gets involved with, uh, they're called the Starahi, and they're very humanoid, but they are all hermaphroditic females. And that it's just a uh, it was something that I came up with, and I kind of was like, where the hell am I going with this? <laughs> but I stuck with it, and it, it does kind of work. So there are there are certainly some alien races that that have uh, kind of the tropolicious part, but then there's the others that, you know, I won't say that they're completely unique, but it was something that for me it was enough of a difference and enough of a of a curiosity factor from an author perspective that I decided to explore it. So do you uh, rely on your, you mentioned earlier that your dad was a biologist or is a biologist. Do you, do you ever like, you know, call, Hey dad, I, I need some aliens. Yeah. I, I've asked him a couple of questions in the course of character and, 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 you know, species development uh, most recently within the, the four horsemen universe, you know, just looking at uh, in, you know, particularly some of the, the mammals, like, you know, we have the, the ursine race, the bear-like race called the Ugar. And so being able to, to, to bounce some questions off of dad is always a good thing. Uh, he hasn't done biology for quite some time. You know, he's in his eighties now and uh, he left biology to work in university administration, but uh, you know, you can't take the scientist out of a guy. So if there's something that dad reads ahead of time uh, and doesn't make sense, he will let me know. Like with the, the Chuck Gannon stories I've been writing in the, the Murphy's Lawless universe, uh, 
I created a race there because I wanted to write a horse cavalry story. And Chuck said I had to create a, a species that uh, they could actually use. So I created the, the Winolani, which are basically like uh, large rideable wizards, uh, lizards. And uh, <clears throat> as I rideable went that, wizards would be one heck of a fantasy. Yeah, though. That would be, <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to do that though. Uh, so, but in creating this race, <laughs> I, I'd bounced a couple ideas off of dad. So yeah. It's it's great to be able to reach back to him as much as I can. Okay, that's that's good. All right, so clearly this interview is winding down. Before before I I start you know rolling up the sidewalks, Doc. Did you have any more sciencey questions? Because no. I know you laugh at my science knowledge. I do laugh at your science knowledge. It is laughable. That is why. Uh, <laughs> um, no, uh, I do want to know. I'm um, seriously, we might have to circle back about the bribing. Um, but this is in the story bundle, right? It is. Yeah, this is in the danger zone story bundle that uh, Kevin J. Anderson's put on. Uh, benefits the Challenger Center for Space Science Education, uh, which I actually have a direct connection to. When I left space camp, I was retired to work with a couple of Challenger Learning Centers. I worked with the one that was in Phoenix, Arizona, and then one that was being developed in Kansas. Uh, both of those at the executive level before the Army called and said, hey, why don't you come back on active duty, which I said, let me think about that for a second. Yes, and did. So uh, uh, Challenger Center was is a uh, organization that was started by the families of the Challenger astronauts with the idea of bringing space science education to kids all over the country. So now there's over 50 Challenger Learning Centers uh, across the world. And uh, they provide training for teachers and then bring the students in to actually conduct a mission in their simulated environment with mission control and with a spacecraft. And uh, it's a fantastic STEM learning environment and they, they do great work. Yeah, getting kids to see the hands-on is, uh, and the application, because there's so much that's cognitive and you don't see, mm -hmm. but getting them to understand that makes a huge difference. Yeah, it does. When you're when you're watching kids in an environment and you see the, the light bulb kind of go on about what they're working on and how it has this impact to the overall mission in itself, it's it's pretty tremendous. As a flight director with Challenger, I, I ran probably a little over 300 missions. And uh, it was, it, it, like I said, it's a great environment to, to be able to take students through. In some cases, teachers will actually teach the curriculum for the better part of a semester. And then they come wow. to the Challenger Learning Center to actually then uh, execute the mission. It's really fantastic to watch. Yeah, and I think also kids are a lot more capable at science than sometimes we understand. And you just got to give them that application. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so I got to ask then, does that mean you, you watched that, was it 80s movie Space Camp? Uh, yes, I, I actually have a copy of Space Camp and one of my best friends is actually an extra in the movie. Oh, cool. Aww, that's cool. I, I watched that with my kids. That's why. <laughs> yep. They, they so, were laughing at the computers being so big. Oh yeah, it, it, there's a there's a lot of laughable tech there, but yeah, it's yeah, it, it's kind of fun to to watch the the movie, and you know, of course, you can, you really have to. In my case, I have to suspend like every amount of disbelief possible, <laughs> but then be able to, to watch for my buddy and the, as as a kid was was kind of fun. Yeah, no, I that falls under the turn off your brain. It's oh. off. Okay, now you can watch it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> very much so. <laughs> very much so. Yeah, all kids are like that. It looked real to my non-scientific brain. I'm like, oh, so that's how it works. <laughs> so oh God, uh, you're adorable. <laughs> it's really so, good you were an English major or a history major or whatever it was that didn't involve English and history in pre-law. I couldn't commit. 
that's what my my advisor told me. This isn't a, a something that we should be proud of. This is just a failure to commit. <laughs> that's what you and get yet, being a all of those involve brain power, but yet you still can't do chemistry. I took better Betty Crocker biology and calculus for non majors, and I barely made it out alive. <laughs> so. This is why I'm here. It is. It is. Aside from the fact that you just are bossy and tell us what to do. Um, but before I dig myself, myself another hole, so clearly this interview is winding down. So before we wrap this up, was there anything you wanted to tell us uh, about uh, runs in the family that we didn't ask? Well, it, it, it's been out for a long time and like it is the first book that I wrote. So if I, I when I go back and look at it, it's like, ooh, I need to change that. But then there's the part of me that's like, no, you, you can't go back and change things. You just have to leave it. Um, so uh, it, it, it's out in, uh, it's actually a wide distributed, wide distributed book. Uh, I think it's also on the Bain uh, website as far as one of the books that you can get from them too. Um, has a, an audio version done by my friend, Cindy Kay, who uh, she just rocked it. Uh, there's no other way to put it. She's really pretty amazing. Um, and yeah, that's, that's pretty much it till I get uh, a direct sequel written. So. Okay. Well, and so, um, so the, Runs in the Family is part of that military sci-fi um, bundle over on Story Bundle. So we talked about um, very in-depth and more than I knew about the charity. But uh, what is your understanding for people who might not have heard of Story Bundle about what that is? So as Story Bundle, as far as I'm aware, it's an opportunity for you to pay what you want for a bundle of books. And so they start with a certain number of books and then they add bonus books onto that. And so Runs of the Family is technically one of the bonus books that's included with the, the bundle itself. But I think there's like, like 20 books that are part of this. And I think you can start at like 15 or 20 bucks to buy all of them. And then, of course, the, the authors get a portion of that. But most of that goes to the, the charity, which is really kind of a, a fun way to do this. So anything below 15 gets you the first, um, let me count them, the first four books. Yeah. Wow. Uh, one of those four books is actually a bundle by Nathan B. Dodge, who's uh, it's a box set with five novels in it. So five, six, seven, eight, yeah. nine books is, is get you in for, for under 15. If you pay 15 or above, you get all of them, which is a total of 19 books. But because there's like, there's anthology bundles, there's a bundle of a box set. It's actually, there's, two, a box lot sets. there's yeah. two box sets. So it ends up being a lot more. And then when you go to pay after you set whatever dollar value you're going to pay, you can also pick um, right now the base set is 70% for the authors, 30% for the story bundle, right? But you get to pick how much goes to the author, how much goes to the charity. Um, and so it's, it's one of those things uh, you can add another 10% on top of that, what you pay for the books just to the charity. So it's, it's a good thing to support authors more directly, cut out the middleman and, you know, some pretty cool charities. So yeah. did you pick the charity or did Kevin Day Anderson just – No, Kevin Kevin picks the charity. Kevin is actually – I think he is still on the national board for the Challenger Center for Space Science Education. So it's an, it's one that's near and dear to his heart too. Okay. All right. Well, that sounds like we've got all the questions. So before we let you go, you have to tell us how we can find you on the wild interwebs. Sure. So uh, my Facebook author page is uh, author Kevin Eikenberry. Uh, I'm on Twitter at the writer Ike. My website is kevineikenberry.com. And that's really pretty much about it. If you go to my website at the top, there is a sign up for what I call the reaction squad. That's my mailing list. Uh, it's uh, a newsletter every month. Uh, I'm in the process of creating some content that will be developed for uh, Patreon. So I'm working on that as well. Uh, that'll be some stuff that'll be outside of uh, the normal universes. And 
hopefully be able to, to maybe throw a couple of ideas out to see if there are things that I could uh, expand upon later on. Uh, but from a social media perspective, yeah, that's pretty much about it. <laughs> okay. And all of those will be in the show notes, dear listener, with all the glorious content he sent us for the four horsemen stuff, since he mentioned that. Um, so you can follow us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades, anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades. We are working on getting a proper website, but it's kind of low on the priority list. We have a Twitter at SF underscore fantasy underscore show Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show you can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com we promise we answer it sometimes you can send your hate mail to suska at blasters and blades podcast.com <laughs> we have a facebook group facebook.com backslash blasters and blades podcast and you can support the show over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr hanley be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast and we will keep our co-hosts uh duly intoxicated while i'm your sober driver and uh, you could also support us over on Anchor FM for five, uh, for one, five or ten dollars a month, or any monetary value therein above that. Uh, and it helps keep the light on and pay for the upkeep, and you know, as little or as much as you want. And now Doc is going to hate me for all the hate mail she gets. So close this out before I step in it even more. You know what? We haven't gotten any yet, so we're all good. Thank you for spending your precious time with us for the absentee Nick Garber, J.R. Hanley. I'm Suska. This was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next time where we'll indulge our love of me, nerd culture, seeing if J.R. can learn what fa what fantasy and sci-fi are, or even just science, and cheesy jokes, and all things geeky. Have a great day. <laughs>